You're listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a World Affairs Council conversation with authoritative voices discussing significant newsmaking issues and individuals. Last May, President Trump followed through on his campaign promise to withdraw from the Iran deal with renewed sanctions being placed on Iran, resulting in heavy consequences for a civilian population who had hoped for a better tomorrow. My guest, Ambassador Tom Pickering, is one of our nation's most distinguished diplomats, holding the rank of career ambassador, the highest in the U.S. Foreign Service. In a diplomatic career spanning some five decades, he was U.S. Ambassador to Israel, the Russian Federation, India, El Salvador, Nigeria, and Jordan. From 1989 to 1992, he was Ambassador to the United Nations in New York. Today, Ambassador Pickering is Vice Chairman of Hills & Company, an international consultancy. He has provided his expertise to a number of international organizations, including now the Iran Project, which seeks to build a balanced, objective, and bipartisan approach to preventing Iran from acquiring a nuclear weapon. It's really nice to have you back in Dallas. Thank you, Jim. And you Great certainly are here. a good friend of the World Affairs Council. Thank you. Before we get to your thoughts on the diplomatic consequences of the withdrawal, take us back to 2015 and refresh our memory about how the Iran deal, or more formally, the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, came about and what are its major elements. Jim, I think I'll take you back a little further because the Europeans started to negotiate with Iran in 2003. And indeed, they got the Iranians to stop uranium enrichment for two years in 2003. In the end, the United States wanted to stop permanently and the Iranians wanted a bigger deal to do that if at all, and so that failed. Over the intervening years, people didn't get very far. It was kind of agreements about when to meet again. But Russia and China joined along with the EU, Germany, Britain, and France. And at the end of the George W. Bush administration, we joined and started to play an active role. By 2012, a careful process of secret diplomacy had using the contacts that the small Arab state of Oman had with Iran, developed an option, which was that the United States and Iran would meet bilaterally in Oman, something the Iranians had not wanted to do, even on the edges of our joining in the multilateral larger conversations with the Europeans, the Russians, and the Chinese. And indeed, I think that was promoted in part by the United States making serious efforts to convince Iran before those talks started that we would not pursue regime change. In fact, that regime change was not on the American agenda, but even more importantly, that we could foresee a nuclear agreement in which they could do some enrichment, but it would be highly limited. Those talks got off to a slow start, but it was my old friend and colleague, Bill Burns, who, when he began to attend those talks, I think helped to spark something forward. And they moved fairly quickly in 2013. And uh, President Rouhani was elected. And uh, Foreign Minister Zarif came into the talks. And by November of that year, we had so settled the first stage of a small agreement that our big problem was people, with people like the French and bringing them up to date and making sure they stayed with us. What was their reaction to that? Their reaction was, gee, you're way out ahead of us and we're surprised and you shouldn't have done it. We should have known we're your friends and allies from a long way back. Why did you leave us alone? <laughs> but there was an agreement in November uh, that was a partial agreement. We won't go into the details. 
And that led to six months periods of negotiation set aside to get to the final agreement. It took four such periods ending in 2015. The agreement in an important way uh, did the following things. It limited the amount of low enriched uranium the Iranians could have at any one time to 300 kilograms, well below the amount uh, that could be upgraded to make a nuclear weapon. It limited the Iranians to a number of centrifuges and an even smaller number that they could operate. And it limited their capacity to do future work on more modern centrifuges by limiting the amounts and numbers they could have. The agreement also provided that the Iranians would have to take a reactor that they were building that was carefully designed, in our view, to be a plutonium producer and disable it entirely. And that they would have to, in effect, make sure that they didn't acquire any more plutonium. There were other restrictions that went forward in detail, perhaps the most extensive ever negotiated between an independent country and a multilateral group. The second major effort was that the agreement should contain inspection, monitoring, and verification which was extremely extensive, including the fact that the Iranians could not buy anything with possible relevance to the nuclear field that we were restricting without the permission of their negotiating partners on the other side, in a sense, a export control regime. But it also meant we could go in very, very frequently if we needed to. We could have continuous monitoring by electronics we could put seals on things that would lock them up so that if they were tampered with, we would know that the inspectors could go very regularly, that the disputes would be settled by a common mechanism and so on. And the third piece was that Iran would be able to get out from under all non-American sanctions, but all American sanctions remained on with the exception of those that had been put on through the UN and directly within the last year or two that prohibited transactions in dollars and so on, and they would come off. Essential American sanctions remain. That agreement was then put into effect in January, I think, of 2016, and it had been in effect until May 8th when we opted out of 2018. The agreement had the provision for monthly reports by the International Atomic Energy Agency, which is the UN's nuclear watchdog. And each report for each month had clearly made evident the Iranians were complying. In the early days, there were a few small disputes about various issues which were resolved by bilateral contacts between the United States and Iran and never got anywhere near the question of violation. There were slight excessive amounts of heavy water and things of that sort. So essentially what you're saying is Iran was Full in compliance. Full compliance. You said something a minute ago that struck me. You said that regime change was taken off the table. By withdrawing from the agreement, has the Trump administration said that regime change is now back on the table? It has in the sense that people like John Bolton at various times have made public statements, and I don't have those to quote, that appeared at least to be verging on regime change because it kind of anathematized the current regime. What went on beyond that, I don't know in terms of inside discussions in the United States. I'm not aware of those. But regime change was a problem. But the agreement did permit a certain amount of enrichment 
and no access to plutonium and no access to highly enriched uranium. This month, Iran is commemorating the 40th anniversary of the revolution. It's hard for us to believe. Are you seeing any cracks in the regime's grip on power? And to a degree, are the sanctions that have been put back in place, is that weakening the regime? There are two interesting and different questions. I've seen over the years some relaxation of the regime's grip on power throughout most of these processes. Certainly one saw a huge popular outrage at the 2000 and I think it was 11 final election of Ahmadinejad. And you remember there was a sort of green wave in Iran. And I think some of that has continued, a lot of it below the surface. What we do see is clearly a polarization of Iranian domestic policy issues or domestic policy activities around the agreement and what's going on. There's been a growth, I think, in the strength of hardline oppositionists to the agreement and hardline oppositionists to working in any way at all with the United, United States. And at the same time, there's been public discouragement with the reformers, the people who made the agreement, that the agreement is not delivering, particularly from the U.S. side, the kind of business and open contacts and new opportunities and investment that they hope the agreement might actually provide. The Europeans keep the agreement with Iran, and Iran is keeping the agreement with the Europeans. But we've had this little episode with the resignation of the foreign minister, which has been reversed by the president, which was kind of another indication that pressure is building from the hardliners on the moderates, and the moderates are essentially the people who brought us the agreement. And let's remind our listeners, the foreign minister, Mohammad Zarif, yes. went to school in the United States, and his professor was? Well, no, his professor wasn't, but his school was named for right. Madeleine Albright's father. Who was a professor. Who was yeah. a professor there, yeah. One of the points raised by U.S. opponents of the Iran deal is the continued support of Iran of various terrorist groups, principally Hezbollah. Uh, how do you respond to that? We made a conscious decision very early on that while there were many issues that we could wind into a grand bargain deal, ballistic missiles and ballistic missile testing, support for Hezbollah and Hamas, uh, oppressive Iranian behavior with respect to non-Muslims and sometimes non-Shia Muslims, but that we would in the end have to dumb down our limitations on the Iranian nuclear side and on the verification in order to get these other questions included. And while they were worthy, I think our primary concern was no nuclear bomb on the part of Iran, and we decided it was better to move quickly and concentrate our attention there rather than to wind ourselves in a long and extensive negotiation on everything else where the leverage we had put together would be dispersed over a wide number of questions rather than focal pointed on the nuclear question. For a long time, U.S. policy was to keep Iran and Saudi Arabia and Iraq all in check and balance, and we certainly moved away from that. The Trump administration has essentially put all of its capital with Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Do you see any avenue that we could rebalance the relationship? I think, Jim, it's a very important question, and I think the issue is very clearly a significant one, because the more we move in an unbalanced fashion, the more likely we are to precipitate a conflict between the two parties. That, in fact, 
the word balance sticks in my mind as I look at this question as one of the formulas for a successful future relationship between Iran and Saudi Arabia, just as I think the, their mutual capacity to have stable deterrence between them could be a very important feature of the future relationship. And taking up all of the support for one side against the other side seems to me designed to drive forward the conflict rather than to drive forward the solution. It doesn't mean that we have to become partisans of Iranian hegemony in the Middle East. We ought to obviously work closely with our Saudi partners and friends, but we ought to work with them on the basis that they do not have a long-term future living in perpetual enmity, tension, and war with their neighbor in Iran, even if they're an ally. And we don't derive much benefit from the notion that sooner or later we may have to go to war for Saudi Arabia against Iran because we failed to take advantage of our opportunities, enhanced in many ways by the JCPOA, which you've just tossed out the window. Uh, to bring about a long-term rapprochement. Now, I say that long-term because I don't sit here and think uh, today in this age that's going to be very rapid. But we're much better inside the tent working for solutions than outside the tent working for essentially further dispersion and further differences in, in the process. So tell us about the Iran Project. Iran Project began roughly in 2002 when two very good friends of mine, Bill Lures and Stephen Hines, Stephen runs the Rockefeller Brothers Fund, uh, Bill Lures ran the uh, Metropolitan Museum of Art, a former Foreign Service officer, and was then president of the United Nations Association, thought we ought to be talking to Iran rather than not talking to Iran. And since the two governments weren't talking, he thought that a track two of, on our side, people who have been former officials and otherwise interested in Iran. On the Iranian side, whoever they wanted to send, Iran is, of course, more pervasive in its control of people, and universities are part of the government. So we got a kind of track one and a half on the Iran side and a track two on our side. Nevertheless, it was helpful. And we started a series of meetings. We met quietly and very privately in Europe and elsewhere. We produced joint documents. We even produced a document around 2003 or four that was a, a, a kind of emendation on the Shanghai communique. What we can't agree on as well as what we could agree on. And we produced it in Persian and in English. And the Iranians kind of looked at it uh, seriously. The Iranians came back to us, not through us, but indirectly, uh, working through the Swiss ambassador in Tehran in 2003 with a set of ideas that uh, the present foreign minister had a great deal, I think, of influence in putting together. Can you say these negotiations and conversations are still going on? They are. Good. And uh, one of the other things we did is we began to write op-eds because we thought the public needed to know. And then we began to write more extensive memoranda, particularly around 2013, when it looked like we or Israel might want to go to war with Iran. We did a very interesting paper, our first one of that, of that variety, giving the pros and cons for using military force against Iran. And it is, I know, famously, the one Washington paper has no recommendations because we said, you're all intelligent people, read it and make up your own mind. So people can go to your website to they read this. They can find these documents on our website. Well, let's jump around the world real quickly in a few remaining minutes. The New York Times called the summit in Hanoi a failure. Should the president, however, not receive some credit for recognizing the impasse that's existed for so many years? 
and leaving the table as he did, or should he have not entertained a meeting with the leader of North Korea until there'd been a more concrete level of understanding of what the eventual outcome might have been? All of the above. I give him credit for recognizing this was an important and serious problem and that something should be done about it. I give him credit for multiplying the leverage, including all the military pressure. I don't give him credit for not on his own, having opened the door to the diplomatic activity which President Moon Jae-in uh, of South Korea was very instrumental in hope, uh, opening the door. I think pressure without a relief valve is going to blow up. I think pressure with a relief valve can turn that pressure into constructive work. I think he was totally mindless in having a summit with no careful preparation, or if there was, not paying attention to it, the first summit. I think he followed on this one with more careful preparation, but had no idea of where he would go if, in fact, what we asked was going to be counterparted on the DPRK side with a much bigger ask on sanctions relief and other measures than we could take. And so, in a sense, uh, he is in a position now to take advantage of the failures of the second summit to use his negotiators, Secretary Pompeo and Steve Begin, to begin to develop much more clearly the set of steps that we should be taking, including stopping uh, the production of fissile material in the DPRK in return for sanctions relief and perhaps some other areas where we can give. But I wouldn't give everything now, which is what Kim Jong-un wants. Kim Jong-un wants all our leverage for half the cake, if I could put it that way. And we have to space that out. And that's where we are. And that's going to be the hard negotiating. And many of us who've dealt with this for a long time have seen this coming over a long period of time. And now he has the advantage of taking that opportunity uh, to put his team to work to see what he can do. But it is not of benefit uh, to have the other side believe that they can work at the top level all the time on every jot and tittle of negotiation because it's undermined the people working under him. So he has to find a way to strengthen the resolve of the Koreans to work in what I would call the workshop before they get into the palace. And the workshop, at least in the United States, the Department of State is not fully staffed, so we'll have to see well, what happens. Well, that's hard. There are a few people around who still work, and I have great confidence in Steve Biggin. So I give the president credit for hiring him. I always like to end uh, our podcast with distinguished diplomats like you who have been around the world defending as well as advocating for the United States. What does American exceptionalism mean to Tom Pickering? I think American exceptionalism means an ability to lead by building coalitions, motivating multilateralism, listening to other people, building consensuses where the strength really rests, rather than merely trying to do it all by diktat. There is no unilateral moment, I think, of a successful variety for us. Uh, we've always worked with our friends and allies. Where we have worked best, we have brought them all in. Where we have worked wor worst is we have tried to tell them how they have to behave. Well, thank you very much for being our guest thank on you, Global Jim. IQ Minute. Great to be here. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Global IQ Minute with Jim Falk, a production of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. Subscribe and rate Global IQ Minute on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. For information about a World Affairs Council in your community, visit worldaffairscouncils.org.